You're listening to Westside Church. For more information, visit us at westsideinfo.com. Good morning, church. Still morning? Still morning. So glad that you're all here. Let me get to the top. Uh, Power, battery. I forgot to plug it in between services, and it's an old laptop, so forgive me. Um, God has really been at work lately um, in my life. Uh, He's been trying to give me some words for this message for weeks, and I've just had some sort of blinders on, and I don't know if my ears were plugged or my sight was dim, but I, I wasn't receiving it, so I've got some stuff to share with you that I think he brought and some exciting ways in which he did it. Um, there's a part of me that hopes the giddiness rubs off on you. Um, during our worship service, uh, during the first service, it hit me that my intro has a lot of tie in it, and I wrestle with that a lot because the danger is that anybody up here with the microphone would draw attention to themselves. That's not my desire. But as I've been studying Joseph's life, and I've been reflecting a lot on that time that he spent speaking to, you know, sharing his dreams, and when he told them, we all think he was foolish to do that, right? But what if, what if there was a giddiness that he had because the Lord had been speaking? What if those dreams were so powerful to him that he actually heard from the living God that he couldn't help but let it spill out? That's what I'm attempting to do here today. And I hope and pray that your attention is on him because that's the whole objective of this message. You with me? Excellent. Let me start. Have you ever had things go really wrong in your life? Have you ever felt like God abandoned you or he forgot you in your pain and in your trials? Have you ever thought that maybe you received a promise only to hit road bump after road bump? Perhaps it's in a friendship or in family relationships where someone really close to you has abandoned you. Perhaps it involved your school where you failed a class or you ended up having to drop out altogether. It might have been in your finances where you had to file bankruptcy, lost your apartment or had your car repossessed. I know it's a fifth Sunday and we have some kids in here. What if your piggy bank, anyway, you guys get what I mean. (sighs) Maybe it was work and you lost a job or a business that meant everything to you. It may have involved the loss of a home. I know we have people here that have lost homes in fire and in foreclosure. You may have lost your health and ended up feeling completely unlike yourself. Or perhaps like Joseph, you may have lost your actual freedom and found yourself in a legitimate prison. All of these crises represent a form of a prison of death, of difficulty, of loss, of pain, a pain deeply manifested in your life. The main idea for today's message is that prison time for Joseph was literal and it was undeserved. It was absolutely a time of difficulty and challenges. So I'd ask, what are the prison times that we face in our own lives? What may we be going through now? What might we have gone through in the past? What may we go through in the future? What are the deserved or undeserved difficulties and challenges that we face? And how are we to view those things? Are they always an attack of the devil? Or do we sometimes give the devil more credit than he deserves? Through the study of Joseph's life as recorded in Genesis chapters 37 through 50, we can learn something about God and how he may be at work in and around your prison experiences and how we should deal with them. The title of this message is Perspective. One of my very earliest memories is when at about the age of six, my parents decided that it was time to take me and my younger sister on that childhood rite of passage the trip to Disneyland, that's right. But it was not going to be like a typical family trip, no. Not one where we piled into the Volkswagen Squareback and left the Bay Area and cruised out to the valley and its farmland. No, we were going to fly. And this memory has ne- nearly nothing to do with Disneyland. I barely remember anything about the trip except the first plane ride. San Francisco to Los Angeles, and I got the window seat. Or you know what? Maybe back in the day, I just got to sit on dad's lap. I don't know. But I remember looking out the window, 
at the patchwork quilt of agricultural fields down in the Central Valley, and I asked my dad this question, Dad, are those all states? <laughs> you see, when I was about four, I was given this little puzzle map of the United States. Some of you might have had one like that. Cut out wooden pieces, painted in different colors, all with little knobs, 50 pieces of different colors made up this map, and I was just enthralled with it. By the time I was five, I could identify the states backwards and upside down by their shapes alone, not even needing the colored side, and I was able to complete the whole map by myself. This little puzzle is how I eventually learned all the names of the states and their capitals, and I tell you this only to say I spent a lot of time with this puzzle. <laughs> Gazing out the airplane window that day and surveying the ground far below us on that first flight of mine, the patchwork quilt of multicolored fields looked a whole lot like my map. And so I asked my dad if all those shapes down below were states. And that is the day that I first learned the word perspective. Perspective is a particular attitude toward or a way of regarding something. It is a point of view. You see, for over a year, I had been studying this little map of mine from a lofty distance of like 12 inches. From that perspective, each state with its unique shape and color linked together, it formed this patchwork puzzle. Well, now from closer to 30,000 feet in the air, the farmland below me looked to my young, inexperienced eyes at least, it looked quite similar. And so I asked, are all of those states? Well, my perspective had been changed. And what I thought I was looking at wasn't at all reality. I had to shift my beliefs and my understanding to align with my new perspective. The change from one foot to 30,000 feet made a huge difference. Before we dig into this passage today, and it's kind of a to me, a really exciting side note, I want to share something that happened to me just this week. I, I had a dream. <laughs> Joe and I had discussed whether or not I would be preaching on the topic of dreams a week ago and decided that due to content and time and what's coming up in the next chapter that he would address it in detail next week. And so I just find it incredibly ironic that I struggled for weeks to put this sermon together. Lots of thoughts, lots of ideas, lots of stuff that's actually in here, but I could not find that thread. I couldn't find that theme. I couldn't find that thing that wove it all together and exactly what I wanted to pull out of this short chapter to share with you all. And then, literally, this Monday night, I laid down to sleep at 1130, and I, I prayed. I'm not kidding, I prayed, specifically asking the Lord to show me what He wanted to say in this message. And in the middle of the night, 2.30 in the morning, I kid you not, I had a dream. Not full of images and vibrancy, but more like words. And somehow this title and the image of the plane and the memory of the puzzle all came to me in addition to six, at least six of the verses that I'll be sharing with you today. I, at first, I didn't want to get out of bed, and then more and more of those verses came, and I was like, okay, okay, I'll go. So I got up at 3.30, and I sat and typed for two and a half hours. Um, anyway, Joe's going to spend more time teaching on the topic of dreams next week, but one thing is clear to me. God wanted me to know, and I think he wanted you to know, that he is sovereign, and that he can still use dreams to communicate with us if he wants to. After all, in the book of Acts, chapter 2, he does say, in the end times, old men will dream dreams. Now, I'm not sure why he gave me one, but anyway, I'm sure that's just perspective. <laughs> All right, well, <clears throat> this word, literally, get this. This is my denseness. This word, perspective, was actually the word of the weekend a few weekends, two weekends ago when my son-in-law and I went backpacking together in Tahoe National Forest. The perspective of looking at the lake from five feet above its surface where the snow was melting into a pond and then trickling into the lake and that's what we fell asleep listening to. That perspective compared to 40 feet above the lake when you just hiked up to a little ridge top changed so much and we said, oh wow, what a different perspective. The next day we went on a day hike and we bushwhacked over the top of the peak and from there looking down at another lake literally 700 feet below us and you probably could throw a rock to it because vertically it was all of that. Like it was incredible, wow, perspective. 
we had conversations where we were looking about at life through our eyes and comparing it maybe to our wife's our wives' eyes, looking at business through our eyes versus our employees' eyes. We talked about our careers and looking at them through our eyes versus God's eyes. And perspective just became the word of that weekend together. And it's a weekend that I will cherish for many, many years. Last weekend, after listening to Joe's amazing streaming online preach from our Airbnb, which by the way, it is streamed. And if you're on vacation, you can still tune in, nine o'clock and 11 o'clock, and you hear it live. But I was walking in Petaluma right after that, and crossing the street, there's one of those utility boxes that they paint these days in all fancy colors and whatever, so that they're not ugly and beige or green or whatever. And in the middle of the street was this painted utility box, and on it, someone had hand-painted. We don't inherit this earth from our parents. We borrow it from our children. And Kyle was five feet ahead of me at that point, and I said, I said, hey, did you see that? And he goes, yep. And I go, what's the word? He goes, this is a week later, right after the backpack. I go, what's the word? He goes, perspective. And I'm like, yeah. So all through these past few weeks, as I've been trying to prepare for this preach, and I couldn't come up with the word for it, God had been working. <laughs> you know, I wasn't even aware of it. It's so incredible. I love seeing how God transcends space and time, and he reaches into our daily lives, even through dreams in really simple yet profound ways. So why was the Lord so intent on making sure that perspective became the title of this preach? Here we go. I am convinced it's because it was perspective that God supernaturally gave Joseph. A perspective that came from his faith in the future that God had shown him that allowed him to endure all kinds of things that seemed to us to make no sense. Nowhere in scripture is it recorded that Joseph ever questioned God nor complained about the situations that he found himself in. Not in the pit, not in slavery, and now not even in prison. Why? Well, I believe it's because Joseph had a view. He had a 30,000 foot perspective that came. It was of the future. It was shown to him by God. God that he believed in, even when he couldn't see the end of it from his limited six foot perspective and viewpoint. Let me see if I can put all these puzzle pieces together for you. You with me? Ready? Yes. All right, all right. So here we go. When Joseph was 17, right, he had two of his own dreams. Do you remember this? We've got some kids in here, so let me just recap quickly. First, he dreamt that his half-brother's 11 bundles of grain bowed down to his bundle. And he told his 11 half-siblings that this dream meant that they would bow down to him someday. Well, how do you think they liked that idea? <laughs> Scripture tells us his brothers responded, so you think that you'll be our king, do you? You actually think that you will reign over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dreams and the way he talked about them. The Bible says that soon he had another dream. In this dream, 11 stars and the sun and the moon all bound down to his star. And he told his half-brothers and then his parents this dream, and now his father, Jacob, scolds him, asking him, Joseph, do you really believe that your mom and I are going to bow down to you someday? Now, while it's easy for us to stop here and simply focus on the thought that maybe Joseph wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed for sharing these dreams out loud with his family, I think by focusing on that, we miss a critical fact. It's really one that I missed for years until God revealed it in this dream to me. And the fact is that Joseph believed that these dreams were from God that these dreams formed a foundation for his perspective of the future. In faith, he believed prophetically these dreams showed him where he would end up and what would happen at the end of his days. And it's really good that he had these dreams and that this faith in God grew, this God who sent those dreams, because it turns out he was really gonna need it. Oftentimes in our life, our perspective gets challenged. Am I right? Well, Joseph's was about to. After, shortly after he shared these dreams with his family, his brothers got really angry. They were jealous of him already, you know, for his special coat and for his position as daddy's favorite, the one that daddy had check up on them when they were out in the fields working and reporting back to him. What does that sound like? Tattletale, yeah. Now they decided they were going to throw him in a pit, strip him of his coat, and they were going to smear it with goat's blood, leave him for dead, and tell their parents that an animal had killed him. 
One of those brothers convinced the others that this was a terrible idea and he had a better plan. Let's sell him into slavery. And that's what they did. A group of people from another region were passing by and they sold their brother to them as a slave. And off Joseph went to a land far away, to Egypt. As a side note, do you remember where the Exodus happens? How did the Jews get there in the first place? This is it. This is the beginning of it. So last week, Joe did an amazing job telling us all about what happened next. He shared that Joseph ended up being bought by a man named Potiphar, a very powerful man in the king's army. The king of Egypt is called Pharaoh. So Potiphar was the captain of the guard in Pharaoh's army, a really high position. And Potiphar brought, bought Joseph, brought him to his home, and Joseph was a slave in his home, working for him, doing whatever Potiphar asked. This sounds terrible, Yeah. But the Bible tells us in chapter 39, verses 2 through 6, the Lord was with Joseph. And so he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. Potiphar noticed this and he realized that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. Verse 4, this pleased Potiphar. And so he soon made Joseph his personal attendant. He put him in charge of his entire household and everything that he owned. From the day that Joseph was put in charge of his master's household and property, the Lord began to bless Potiphar's household for Joseph's sake. I think a whole nother preach on that, and I don't have time. All his household affairs ran smoothly, and his crops and his livestock flourished. And so Potiphar gave Joseph complete administrative responsibility over everything he owned. With Joseph there, he didn't worry about a thing except what kind of food to eat. All right, looks like Joseph's doing pretty well for himself. I mean, he's, he's actually like a boss in the house. But at, at this point, once again, things are going to get challenging. Speaking to a G-rated audience, let me just say that Potiphar's wife accused Joseph of doing something really bad, something that Joseph didn't do, and Potiphar put him in jail for it. Potiphar believed his own wife over Joseph. Why? Well, <laughs> Husbands and wives, families, they're not supposed to lie to each other. Trust is super important in your family, kids, as it is with all of God's people, and lying breaks that trust. And so Potiphar believed his wife, and I suspect, husbands, that probably would have gone pretty badly for him if he didn't, yeah? So Joseph ends up being thrown into prison for something he didn't do. Sometimes bad things happen to good people. This is just a truth in life. As Joe shared last week, life is often not fair. It will be in heaven someday, but down here, no such luck. And this brings us to our passage for today. Joseph is in jail. What do you think is going to happen next? Sometime later, Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and chief baker offended their royal master, Pharaoh became angry with these two officials and he put them in the prison where Joseph was in the palace of the captain of the guard. They remained in prison for quite some time and the captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph who looked after them. While they were in prison, Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker each had a dream one night and each dream had its own meaning. When Joseph saw them the next morning, he noticed that they both looked upset. Why do you look so worried? He asked them. And they replied, we both had dreams last night, but no one can tell us what they mean. Interpreting dreams is God's business, Joseph replied. Go ahead and tell me your dreams. I'm going to pause here for just a moment because I think that that verse is really intriguing and I think it's really important. See, Joseph says interpreting dreams is God's business and then he says, tell me your dreams. I believe that this verse tells us a lot about Joseph's relationship with God. Joseph believed that he and God were so close that God would allow Joseph to do his business. After all, if you said, interpreting dreams is God's business, and then you went on to interpret a dream, how would you think that you did that? You'd think God did it through you, am I right? So I am operating from the premise here that Joseph and God were tight. That's an 80s term for some of you that might not, tight, like close, like, like, okay. All right, with this in mind, let's return to the text. So, 
The chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream first. In my dream, he said, I saw a grapevine in front of me. The vine had three branches that began to bud and blossom and soon produced clusters of ripe grapes. I was holding Pharaoh's wine cup in my hand, so I took a cluster of grapes and squeezed the juice into the cup. Then I placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. This is what the dream means, Joseph said. The three branches represent three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift you up and restore you to your position as his chief cupbearer. And please remember me and do me a favor when things go well for you. Mention me to Pharaoh so that he might let me out of this place. For I was kidnapped from my homeland, the land of the Hebrews, and now I'm here in prison, but I did nothing to deserve it. Well, when the chief baker saw that Joseph had given that first dream such a positive interpretation, he said to Joseph, hey, I had a dream too. In my dream, there were three baskets of white pastries stacked up on my head, and the top basket contained all kinds of pastries or bread for Pharaoh, but the birds came and ate them from the basket on my head. This is what the dream means, Joseph told him. Those three baskets also represent three days. Three days from now, Pharaoh will lift you up and impale your body on a pole, and then the birds will come and peck away at your flesh. Do I have the kids' attention? Okay, all right. (laughs) I thought you'd... Okay, Pharaoh's birthday came three days later, and he prepared a banquet for all of his officials and staff. He summoned his chief cupbearer and his chief baker to join the other officials at his party. Sorry, I I added that. Then he restored the chief cupbearer to his former position so he could again hand Pharaoh his cup. But Pharaoh impaled the chief baker just as Joseph had predicted when he interpreted his dream. Pharaoh's chief cupbearer, however, forgot all about Joseph, never giving him another thought. Now hang on a minute. I mean, what is poor Joseph thinking at this point? Joseph at 17 has these two recorded dreams. First, that his brothers would bow down before him. And the second, that his mother and his father and his brothers would bow down before him. And then what? Then he's left in a pit, left for dead. Then he's sold into slavery. Then he's sent to Egypt. And then he's purchased as a slave by Potiphar. Then he's accused unjustly by Potiphar's wife and thrown into prison. Then what? Then he's forgotten. What? Tell me that you and I wouldn't be screaming at God about now. What are you doing? Where are you? What's with this crazy roller coaster? You showed me these great things happening in my future, and through these dreams, you promised me a life in which my family would be near me, and I'd be connected to them, and I'd be honored by them. This looks like a dead end, God. And I think if many of us, if we're honest, we might be asking, how could a loving God let someone like Joseph end up in a pit, end up in prison, end up in slavery in the first place? Am I right? I mean, in our finite minds and with our limited perspective, we would see such an imprisonment as unjust, as wrong, or as an attack of the enemy. But there are two really important and powerful truths for us to understand as we analyze these challenging years of Joseph's life. And the first one is kind of a mind blower. Number one, God actually sent Joseph to Egypt. He was inherently involved in getting Joseph to this foreign land. What do I base that on? Joseph's own words recorded in scripture. Spoiler alert. In about five weeks, in chapter 45, verse 5, now do not be distressed or angry. He says this to his brothers. Do not be angry or distressed with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me ahead of you to save life and preserve our family. God sent me here. We could spend a whole sermon on this, but just to flesh it out a little bit, you know, it's not God caused my brothers to throw me in a pit. It's not God made my brother sell me into slavery. It's not God told Potiphar's wife to try to lure me into a bad situation. But in and through all of this, somehow, God's divine will was to send me to Egypt. According to Skip Heitzig, it was God's perfect will that Joseph go through a stint in prison. 
God sent Joseph to Egypt and actually planted Joseph in this prison ministry as preparation for what God was going to do in his life. And Joseph blossomed and he grew there. It was God's plan, his providential will that Joseph ended up in prison. Not in my notes, but something I discovered in in prepping for this. The position that he held as daddy's favorite with the special coat and kind of tattletailing was not going to build up the skills necessary to save the world during a famine. The time in prison and the time in Potiphar's house is where his administrative skills grew and blossomed. That's a freebie. Someone once famously said, sometimes God allows that which he hates in order to accomplish that which he loves. The second truth that we need to understand is that Joseph's prison experience included God. It's not as if God just sent him there, left him there, abandoned him there, and waited for him to get out on his own. No, God was with him. Again, where do I base this thought and idea from? Right from scripture. Remember what we saw last week in Genesis 39, verses 20 to 23. So Joseph, he took Joseph and threw him into prison where the king's prisoners were held. And there he remained. Verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph in the prison and showed him his faithful love. And the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. Before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners and over everything that happened in the prison. The warden had no more worries because Joseph took care of everything. The Lord was with him and caused everything he did to succeed. So, God not only sent Joseph to Egypt, but he was with Joseph in Potiphar's house and in the prison, and in both places he showed him his faithful love. Joseph somehow and at some point had come to understand this bigger plan of God's. He had his perspective changed. Some might argue that he figured all this out in the end, but the, you know, when he saw the puzzle pieces come together, it all made sense to him. But I, honestly, I believe he already had this faith and this perspective when he went into the pit. I believe this not because not once in scripture is it recorded that he ever questioned God, he ever yelled at God or complained about his circumstances. And to me, this is only possible when someone has an unwavering trust in God, trusting that God is with him and that God knows what he's doing. Again, I didn't put this in the notes, but if you're going through this kind of thing and you're wrestling and you find yourself complaining, I don't want you to feel like in your own strength, you have to be Superman and just grin and bear it and deal with it. Remember, our Savior hung on the cross and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? So our own Savior voiced his discontent with the situation. (laughs) You know, so don't beat yourself up if you're having a hard time going through it. But the main point I'm trying to make is that Joseph's perspective was strong knowing what the end held for him. He seemed to have this perspective even before these scriptures were recorded. Are you ready? I got a list of scriptures here. They weren't written down anywhere yet. They existed in God at this point. And somehow God, I believe, communicated them with Joseph. It makes perfect sense to see how he made it through these tough times. The first thing for his perspective from Psalm 73, God is always with us. The second, that God's ways are higher than our own. Joseph must have understood this. He must have understood that to the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. He must have grasped that if we humble ourselves, at the right time, God will lift us up in honor. We must give all of our worries and our cares to God. Somehow he believed that God has a plan for us. And that somehow that plan involves working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. As I've said multiple times already, I think he believed that he knew the end of the story just as we know the end of the story. This next one is powerful. I'm gonna spend a second unpacking it. I believe that he understood So if you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right and trust your lives to the God who created you for he will never fail you. 
My question is, are we suffering that way? If you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, are we suffering in that way or are we complaining and whining and wallowing? Wallowing's an issue. It's another sermon. Joe's going to preach on that someday. Now, who knows how or where he developed this, but I believe that even like Job, he believed, though he may slay me, yet will I trust him. Not everything in life would be easy, and this, I believe, is the perspective that we need to get through our prison times. You with me? All right. Well, speaking of our challenges, our struggles, and our prison times, I want to share with you that beyond Old Testament examples like Joseph, it really is possible to find those who are examples to us in this day and age. I want to introduce to you uh, Joe and Pam Kemp, two friends of mine and of this church who um, you may not know. Please welcome them to to the stage for a little interview time. Can I get some help with the chairs, please? So Joe and Pam found the Lord, or rather he found them, in 1999 here at Westside, when the Vanderdusen's daughter, which is Emily's sister, invited them to church when she was babysitting their daughter, Olivia. Joe still remembers the first time that he was invited to a Bible study here. It was by Logan Lemming's dad, and he thought, what? That sounds kind of crazy. I'm not sure if I'm into all this voodoo stuff. (laughs) Within months, both Joe and Pam had accepted Christ and been baptized here in this church. Joe and Pam began leading a small group about 19 years ago, and then they became deacons, and they became elders and served Westside and God faithfully on eldership for eight years here. They've never looked back, again, as in love with the Lord as ever, an imperfect yet faithful man and woman of God. Well, Joe was diagnosed with Parkinsonism in November of 2020, and this man who was twice amongst the strongest men in all of Placerville, based on the Studebaker wheelbarrow race, which is a thing, it's a real thing. Look it up. This man began a slow and steady physical decline, an imprisonment of sorts. Joe and Pam have been my small group leaders, they are my neighbors, and so I know them pretty well, and I'm honored to call them friends. I'm consistently blown away by how they're walking together through this incredible journey of pain and imprisonment and uncertainty in faith and in hope and in love and in integrity. Welcome, Kemps. All right, I have some questions for you, my friend. Describe for us, if you would, some of the daily impacts of this disease. How's it impacting you? Uh, Can you hear me? Um, they, they impacts, well, first, my voice. Obviously, I don't speak that well. I wobble, I shuffle. I tend to want to fall over all the time, 24-7 when I'm awake anyway. That doesn't ever leave. I can still recall when I was healthy, so I still can bear. It's like an out-of-body experience. Hmm. I know what it used to be like to do these things that you all don't even think about, and that is simply walking, or bending, or turning, or twisting. All of those are, are just efforts for me and risks and are fall risks to me. Fall risks. Yes, fall falling, risks. yeah. Have you ever been angry with God through this? Um, no. I've been, after I take a fall, I'll sit, sit there and um, why? I'd be like disappointed but not angry. I question, but no anger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, one of the things about Joe that I find, is it okay to say humorous? He giggles and laughs all the time. And I mean, imagine how much harder that makes it to understand him. 
But Joe, why, why you like in the midst of yeah. some of these difficult things, you'll start giggling, laughing, and get a yeah. tear in your eye. What's going on? Um, I call that the spirit of joy. And I think that God gave me that to counteract hmm. my Parkinson's a little bit again. <laughs> so I'm really grateful that I don't want to be distracted. I'm laughing, giggle, and I do it at the most. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted you to experience it. <laughs> what has God taught you through um, these difficult times already? To really, I've had to learn patience. I was, I thought, uh, patient, but now it takes me so long to do anything. It's, it's like a long time. My poor wife, but yeah, I say patience, and you never know what can happen in life. Mm. I didn't know we all heard that, but now I am experiencing, experiencing it, yeah. and it's true. You never know, so make it count. Especially for God. <laughs> what's the um, what's the hardest part of oh. going through this for you? It's her. <laughs> She's hard. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the uh, illustration I have is her and I. Well. I'm at retired, I'm retired. Retired. And so, <laughs> is that bad? No, it's okay. So, it. you always have plans and hopes and dreams and thoughts for retirement, the golden years. Well, in our case, if you can let the retirement represent a her and I standing, looking at a beautiful Thanksgiving dinner, just hungry. It's all done. Family's coming over, and right before we sit down to eat, it almost crashed into the floor. The whole table is empty. It's like I felt like God. I don't think it's God, I don't know it. You, me, are the mess on the floor. You have to clean it up. (laughs) (laughs) So she has had to adjust her life to my disease. And I know it's been hard for you. So I imagine there's a verse or two that you keep coming back to through this? Well, there's, yeah, there's a lot of verses. But Second Corinthians 18? 4, 18. 4, 18. Yep. It says, do not. It's Paul's instruction to all of us. Do not focus on what is seen. So me, he's telling me to me, looking at you, don't focus on you. Focus on what is unseen. Unseen. For what is seen will disappear, but what is unseen will last for, is eternal. And that's what I choose to do. Awesome. Joe, I appreciate you. Yeah, <laughs> I appreciate you too. Pam, um, what's the hardest part of this for you, of going through this with Joe? Hello? Yep, you're on. Uh, hardest part is that I cannot be superwoman and take away the suffering 
and the imprisonment that he is in and watching someone that you love and care about go through this, it, it's just, it's indescribable. Mm. That's probably the hardest thing for me mm. is just seeing him go through it. And so, hurting and, yeah, so are you ever angry about this, if, on, honestly? To, to God, right? Yeah. No, yeah. I've never felt angry with the Lord. I've felt frustrated, <laughs> impatient, and I think you said that same thing. I felt a lot of other things, but not anger towards the Lord, because I trust that he's working all things for the good, and there is a purpose, and he wins in the end. Um, I didn't I didn't plan on a, a little interjection here, but I, I think it's really powerful knowing your stories and knowing you guys that, that um, as with Joseph, I think the Lord has been doing a lot of work in your lives for the last 19, 20 years in not, not necessarily saying, I mean, he's outside of space and time. Somehow this preparation has prepared you for this, you know, this strengthening of your faith. So the, the strengthening of your faith is in place as you, as you run into this. Yes. Yeah. Um, what has God shown you, Pam, or what has he taught you already through this time? So much. So much um, in our marriage, just some little areas that need to be tweaked, or talked about, looked at, um, which is positive. Yeah. And our connection and our closeness is even greater than it was before. And, and you know, maybe, who knows, maybe that's why this happened. We don't know, but I just know that he's using it for good. So. Mm. Um, that's what he's been showing me, and um, patience, a lot of patience. He's been showing me that I'm a very impatient person. <laughs> I do everything fast. I move fast. I think fast, and I have to move much slower like a, a turtle <laughs> with a broken leg. I'm really going to slow down. <laughs> Don't forget the broken leg. Oh, a turtle yeah. with a broken leg. Yeah, that's... He um, used to wait for me to come to church in the car, and now I'm the one out there waiting for him. Yeah. So, yeah, patience and, and so many more things, but yeah. probably those two are key. Is there a verse or some verses that Romans come? eight twenty eight? Yeah, mm -hmm. he works out the good, trusting that. Um, do you have a word of advice for us based on on your experience here? Well, let me see. Um, it, Pretty much, I think what you were saying, Joe, is just appreciate what you have. Your family, your kids, your friends. Just be grateful for every little thing in your life, you know, because you never know when it can be taken away. You never know mm -hmm. when things, when your life one day is one way and then the next day it's completely, it's not the life as you used to know it. Press into God for sure, lean on Him. And uh, just keep your faith. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I appreciate you guys. This, is, this has been what we call a testimony. Um, and it's meant to encourage and it's meant to strengthen the body. And if you um, would help me return the favor, let's encourage them and strengthen them. I know you want to clap right now, but before we do that, um, if, if you have been impacted by Joe and Pam in their time here, um, in this church over the years, if you have served with them, if they have served you and ministered to you, if you've been ministered to by them, um, would you, I want you to feel free to come up. We're going to pray over them for a minute. I'm going to pray, but um, please come on up and surround them with your love and encouragement and support, and I'm going to pray. Hmm. Lord God, we come before you in humility, grateful for an opportunity to see a living example of those that are walking through hard times with great faith, those that are enduring a prison time that we can only imagine, and we thank you for the fact that you are with them. As has been made so obvious in their testimony, you have strengthened them, you have met with them and provided them um, a perspective that you are still in control in the middle of all of this. 
And so we thank you for what they continue to be, not just what they've been, but Lord, what they continue to be to this body as servants and encouragers and strengtheners of, of all of our faith. We're so grateful to you for that. And Lord, um, none of us want to put you in a box and simply thank you for what you're currently doing. We, we want to bang on the doors of heaven right now, Lord. And we want to come before you and we want you to know that our will is that you would heal Joe. Our will is that you would bring whatever you want, whether it's a new medication, whether it's some sort of surgery, whether it's an anointing healing that happens right now as we're praying. Father, we are not putting you in a box, but we're telling you our heart's cry is that you would heal Joe fully. Lord, we love you and we love them and we thank you for what you're doing in their lives even now. We trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, church. Thank I, you all. Um, can we give them a hand? Like in Joe's case, I really mean, can we give him a hand? Like, <laughs> Thanks, Matt. I um, had somebody come up to me after the first service and talk about that experience. And um, she talked about healing. And I said, you know, God's desire is to be glorified. And I think he's incredibly glorified by the way that they're walking through this right now. Um, and as I was praying, as, along with our st small group for Joe and for healing, um, I, I didn't say this in the last service, but... As you know, I have dreams. <laughs> but I, I, had a, I had a vision. Um, and again, the sky didn't part and this, the light coming down into the room. Ah! But, but as I was praying for Joe's healing, I saw him dancing. And, and, and it's the Lord that, um, it's God's business to interpret dreams. But my interpretation of that was that Joe is healed. That on that spiritual level, on that spiritual plane that really matters, because this earthly existence is just here temporarily, right? On that, on that eternal scale, he is healed already. And he's dancing and he's with the Lord. He's in the kingdom, like even though he's still here amongst us. So um, I don't know if somebody needed to hear that, but I, I just, I thought that was an uplifting and encouraging thing, Joe. You are full and you are whole and you are complete just as you are. Um, to have a functional perspective and an understanding about what God is doing in Pam and Joe's life right now, I, th I think we need this 30,000-foot perspective. And again, Scripture is the place to go when you need lenses that give perspective. I had this verse in here already, and then Joe shared his verse. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 and 18, for our present troubles are small, and they won't last very long yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them all and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles that we can see now, but rather we fix our eyes on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. As the musicians come up, I want to begin our descent from 30,000 feet by sharing a real mind-blowing thing. Musicians, I meant it. Thanks. Come on up. <laughs> this, this was mind-blowing to me. And preparing for this preach, I think it's really powerful to see that Joseph is a foreshadow of Christ. We should not be surprised, but rather we should be excited when we see Jesus, when we dig deeply into Scripture. After all, he himself said in the Old Testament, he, sorry, he said that the Old Testament Scriptures point to him. When he was speaking to a group of Pharisees who didn't get who he was, he said, you search the scriptures because you think that they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. I love seeing the Bible as a unified story, uh, one that always points through both the Old Testament and the New Testament to Jesus, our Savior, who has always been God's plan for the redemption of mankind. I, I have to admit, I'd never seen Joseph in this way before. Theologians have a fancy word for this kind of thing, typology. It refers to historical people and places and objects or events that foreshadow 
or point really blatantly to Christ and to his work in the Old Testament. I want you to consider as we close these similarities. Joseph and Jesus scorned and rejected by half-siblings and their own people. Joseph and Jesus accused of things that they didn't do. Joseph and Jesus suffering for crimes and lies of someone else. Joseph and Jesus finding themselves between two men, also accused. One ended up being saved, the other not. A few years after this prison event, Joseph is going to end up being honored greatly as Pharaoh's right-hand man, number two in all of Egypt. And we know that Jesus is seated in the place of honor at God's right hand in heaven. Joseph was sent by God to a hard place in order to save the world from famine. Jesus was sent by God to earth to save the world from sin. What a powerful thought. Joseph pointing to Jesus, the savior of the world, who willingly gave his life upon a cross, was buried for three days, and then rose again, defeating death and the grave. If you are a believer in Jesus, if you have submitted your life, confessed your sins, and you have dedicated your life to imitating him, then it's time to remember him. The way we do every week here, we're gonna take communion together in a moment. But before we do, one final thing. Those two men with Joseph in prison, who were they? A baker representing bread. A cupbearer representing wine. The elements of communion. One saved, the other not. Death and life. One representing Jesus' death, one representing his life. In this chapter, Joseph says, remember me to the cupbearer, just as Jesus tells us to remember him when we take this bread and wine and communion. But don't miss this, though. Chapter 40, last verse. Pharaoh's chief cupbearer, however, forgot all about Joseph, never giving him another thought. This whole message we've been identifying with Joseph, seeing our situations in light of his, seeing our struggles, our hardships, our loss, our pain as a form of a prison that Joseph experienced. But now I think, I think we need to step back for just a second and, and as we approach communion, we need to ask ourselves, are we Joseph? Are we the one who's been forgotten? Or is there a chance that we're the cupbearer? The one who's been freed from eternal bondage and imprisonment and has been restored to the palace and to the right relationship with the king. And yet perhaps we have forgotten the one who has set us free. It is a fifth Sunday and we have children in here. If your children have accepted Christ in the way that I've described, take communion as a family together. Let's take a minute. Let's get settled with the Lord and let's take communion. Amen.